Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guests are Gaurav Chakrabarty, CEO, and Sean Hunt, CTO, of Solugen. Chemical companies have historically used petroleum, natural gas, and phosphates to make their products, exacerbating air and water pollution. Solugen aims to replace many of these ingredients with chemicals using renewable resources like simple sugar. The company recently raised a $357 million venture funding round, led by Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC, and Bailey Gifford, and joined by several other funds focused on solving the climate crisis. I was excited for this one because decarbonizing the chemicals industry is an area we've not covered a lot here on the podcast, and it's such an important one. So I'm excited to learn more about it and to help you all learn more about it too for anyone that wants to. We cover a lot in this episode, including the origin story of the company, the landscape of chemicals, what's made them so toxic and problematic, what's been difficult about decarbonizing them. We talk about the Solugen approach how it came to be, some of the twists and turns along the way, where they're at today, where they're going, some of the headwinds and barriers that they still need to overcome, and what changes could accelerate the adoption of their technology and others that will get the chemicals industry to where it needs to be. Gaurab, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Jason. Thanks so much for coming. And you guys just had some, some big news as well. So I would imagine that things are fairly busy for you these days. That's <laughs> uh, yes, big news from our side. You know, we we just announced a pretty large fundraise for the history of our company. That's going to help us, you know, continue moving down the path and scaling up our technology. Awesome! And give us the quick snapshot on that, just for anyone that didn't see the the press release. Yeah, we ended up raising three hundred fifty seven million dollars at a one point eight billion dollar valuation. 
from, I would say, some of the best you know, long-term and climate-focused investors in the world, including BlackRock, Bailey Gifford, GIC, Tomasic, and Carbon Direct, and as well as some participation from Lower Carbon Capital, so Chris Saka's fund as well. So a lot of folks on there who are very long-term, crossover-type public market individuals, as well as hyper-sustainability focused. So I think it goes to show you kind of those worlds are starting to collide a little bit, which is exciting for people like us who are in the climate tech space. Yeah, totally. We're, we're seeing the same thing at MCJ. And just taking it from the top, what is Solugen? <laughs> fantastic question. Solugen, what are we? We do kind of peg ourselves as a climate tech company, right? Where what we focus on is using renewable resources like biomass or carbon dioxide, which can come from various sources and convert that to fundamental chemicals and materials that we interact with every day. So like the chemicals that treat water that you drink today or the the plastics that are being put into our planes and our Teslas and things of that nature. We want to be able to be the company that really redefines the way chemicals are made and do it in a sustainable way and make the whole industry carbon negative. Awesome. And gosh, I mean, there's so many different ways we could go from there. But maybe before we get too much into the Solugen story, tell me a little bit about your origin stories. How did you come to be doing this work? Maybe each of you just kind of give the snapshot of your personal journey and how you got into the seats that you're sitting in today. Very interrelated. Very, very interrelated. I'm actually a physician scientist. I've been studying pancreatic cancer for some time and discovered a very fascinating set of reactions in cancer cells that make a lot of the chemicals and molecules that we talk about every day. The first molecule that we discovered in pancreatic cancer was hydrogen peroxide. And it was just remarkable how efficiently these cancer cells were able to make the peroxide. And the weirdest thing was, you know, I was, you know, really excited by how this stuff was being made in the cell. Really cool. It's using, you know, biomass to do it in the cell. But then Sean was at MIT, he did his chemical engineering PhD on, he was working on the production of hydrogen peroxide on metal catalysts at massive scales. Yeah, so my background is something called heterogeneous catalysis. So it's something a lot of people don't know, but actually 90% of all the chemicals, materials, you know, things you interact with every day, at some point, they pass through what's called a metal catalyzed reaction. It's something you could think of kind of like classical chemical engineering. And I started my career actually developing fuel cells for the U.S. Navy. And so then, you know, went to grad school and I met Gorup through my wife when he was at medical school with her. And so it's just kind of very unusual for someone with my background to talk to someone who studies enzymes. And so how did the company come to be? It wasn't supposed to be a company, Jason. It was like we were just like passionate about the science, right? So like what we realized was like if we could marry my world of biology and enzymes with Sean's world of metals and like industrial scale synthesis, we might have a fighting chance of creating a more sustainable way of producing the chemicals that we interact with every day. And so that really excited us from just like a fundamentally new, cool technology perspective. But on top of that, what was really interesting was it worked. Like very rarely do you like see a science idea work on the first few tries. And what we decided at that point was like, well, if this is working at, you know, a scientific level, is there relevance to society for this? Can we go and produce these chemicals at scale on our own? And so long story short, we, MIT was our first check in the company and we, it was a $10,000 check. So not like a whole 
host of things to write home about. But they gave us 10,000 bucks. We went to Home Depot, bought some PVC pipes and built our first reactor and started cash flowing in a couple of months. And that's when we realized like, well, one, this was done with 10,000 bucks and we're cash flowing 10K a month in the, you know, in the span of a couple of months. That's pretty cool. Could we do this bigger? Could we keep doing this? Could we start scaling these like mini reactors all around the world and start having a very profitable business? And that's when we decided that Y Combinator was the right place for us to try to learn how to do the company building. Because, you know, coming at it as scientists, we didn't necessarily know how to build companies. And that's where we thought Y Combinator could be a really good place for us to be. And Sean, I know, you know, we had debates on, hey, do we want this to be a business? Is this going to make sense? But I think ultimately we decided that if we want to see this technology flourish, we have to do it through a private enterprise. We can't do it through academia. So in a pre-Solugen world, how have chemicals been made historically and what are some of the issues with the current way of doing things? Yeah, so there's really actually only two ways to make chemicals. So there's petrochemistry, which is my background, and then there's also fermentation. But if you if you take a big step back and you think about like what are you actually trying to do in the chemicals industry, all you're doing is you're purchasing some feedstock putting it through this black box process and trying to make a product. And you want to do it as efficiently as possible. And the problem in the chemicals industry is that we're actually really bad at doing that. Chemical engineers have been trying for over a century now. And the problem with petrochem is you use really toxic feedstocks, really high temperatures. And so your feedstock gets converted into a whole bunch of products. Many of them are toxic and you have to pay to separate them out. And so the economics become pretty poor. Similarly, on the fermentation side, you know, people look at fermentation as a potentially better way to make molecules, but the problem is that the cells are living organisms like you and me. So 50% of the sugar feedstock in the cells actually gets converted to carbon dioxide via respiration. And the cells do 20,000 reactions simultaneously. So you end up with the same problem where you kind of get this soup of products and you can't convert your feedstock directly to the product. So what's really exciting about Solugen is it's actually an entirely new way to manufacture molecules. It's a third way. We take the best elements of fermentation, which are the enzymes that are within the cells, and we take the best part of petrochemicals, which are the heterogeneous metal catalysts, and we combine them together. And when you combine these together, it's called a chemi-enzymatic process, and Solugen has created a new asset class called a bioforge. And so for the first time, what's really groundbreaking is that we can convert a feedstock directly to the product. We don't make side products. And this has really big implications for the chemicals industry because there's really three buckets of emissions. There's the front end process that I just talked about, converting a feedstock to a product. Then there's all the separations that you have to do if you make a super products. And then there's all the transportation associated with moving those products around. But because Solugen solves that first bucket, converting the feedstock directly to the product, we can also solve the other two. We don't have to pay huge amounts of money, huge amounts of capex, and emit huge amounts of emissions doing separations. And we can also build smaller plants, which means we can essentially provide our products directly to our customers without having to ship across the world. So I'm going to try to parrot back what I think I just heard. And by the way, caveat, this is way out of my element. So I'm really glad to be having this discussion because it's such an important area not one I have a lot of experience in. But I, I think what you said is there's two different kinds of processes and each one is inefficient and 
toxic and emissions producing and expensive for different reasons, but there's elements of each that are good and you're taking the elements of each that are good and applying them together to form a new kind of process. And that process is both more efficient, it's cheaper, and then it reduces emissions because it can both skip some of the extraneous steps, but also some of the transportation that would be necessary if if you were including those extra steps, because with those steps comes transportation and other kind of supply chain wear and tear, let's say, that adds to cost and adds to emissions. Yeah, wow. Jason, you're a really good listener there. I'm trying. I think I'm stressed out about it because I know so little that I'm like listening extra hard to try to. <laughs> that was really good. No, that's exactly right. You know, the reality is like I always kind of liken it back to like the semiconductor industry back in the 1970s, right? Back in the day, you had like 1970, you had Fairchild Semiconductor, which was really, really good at designing chips, really good at it. But they couldn't produce those chips at scale in a way that was like cost effective. Until Intel comes around and says, hey, we're going to take this beautiful design, but we're going to take the best parts of this process called photolithography, right? And they said, let's take this photolithography process and this beautiful design process, marry them, and get to a way where we can scale chip manufacturing. And that's where Moore's Law was born because of that process insight. In a similar way, that's kind of where we are today with synthetic biology, right? You've got these amazing companies that are doing really good design work on the microbe side. They can make these catalysts, make them cool, but it's really, really hard to scale it up in a way that people are going to pay money for it, right? It's just not economical. What we've done is we said, hey, let's take the best of this process called chemienzymatic, right? Where it's like, we're not demonizing petrochemistry. There are things that we've learned from it that we can apply to this synthetic biology revolution. And now all of a sudden we're scaling up, you know, three to five X faster than the competition. You know, traditionally it takes a company to go from bench scale to like commercial scale. It's about 15 years. We did ours in five years, right? A third of the time. And that's precisely because of that Intel analogy. We've got this now cool process insight that we've married with this design insight to actually enable rapid scale up. And so that's kind of how I think about what we're doing is, just a new way of looking at at the old platforms that we've always had. So if you want to kind of maybe step outside of yourselves and go to the bird's eye view of, of not only what you're doing, but also, you know, kind of the, with the benefit of hindsight, what are the key phases that you've been through so far? Like, where does one start once they have that insight, if they're trying to commercialize it and yeah, maybe just kind of summarize those key phases and then bring that back around to where you are today? I'm going to let Sean answer this one because we actually did have a phased out plan for Solugen. <laughs> so I'm sure Sean is commenting. It's this. like the Solugen progress today for dummies. That's what I'm looking yeah, for. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing that really changed the trajectory for Solugen was going through Y Combinator. It really just changed how we thought about the business. Because one of the things that Gorb and I did was we went on a listening tour with many of the founders of the Cleantech 1.0 companies just to understand like, how should we think about approaching the chemicals industry? Like, how should we approach this differently? And what we learned was two things. So as we are scaling up from benchtop to pilot to commercial, it's just as important to scale up distribution and supply chain. And so if you look at Solugen from 2017 through today, you know, we started, you know, with our tiny little $7,000 PVC reactor and we were selling it a product to an end use customer in float spas for like 30 bucks a gallon. And then it's like, okay, well, what's the next level of scale? Okay, we scaled up to our pilot plant, which was a 100x scale up over our first PVC reactor. And then we started selling into cleaning wipes. 
really far down to the end customer. And then we actually entered the water treatment sector. And if you look at where Solugen is today, we've now just launched our first 10,000 ton per year first commercial plant. It's an over 500,000x scale up from the PVC reactor. And what's really exciting about this plant is that it offsets and sequesters over 30,000 tons per year of carbon dioxide equivalents. It's actually a net carbon negative asset. And it's the first facility permitted in Houston without air or wastewater emissions. And so now that we have this even larger asset, you know, it's not just water treatment anymore. Now it's agrochemicals. Now it's concrete. We're even working with the Department of Defense. So there's a lot of really new, exciting areas that we can bring this asset to. And then I think about phase four. I'll go back and summarize for you, Jason. So phase one, we had a little PVC reactor selling into float spas. Phase two, pilot plant selling you know, into the water sector. Now we're at phase three, we have our first commercial plan and we're in a whole bunch of different industries. And what our series C is actually really for is to start doing this phase four, where we have a whole pipeline of different molecules that you can make on the bioforge. And now we have this at scale technology. And so now it's about doing multiple different molecules in multiple different industrial sectors. And what's interesting is as you kind of go across this phase plan, the impact, the carbon reduction impact starts having step function changes at each site. So for us, we're now finally getting into the realm where our process and operations are actually going to be carbon negative for the industry, which is remarkably exciting. And in the earliest days when you're just trying to get your stuff to work, let alone to scale it, at what point did you start thinking about applications and where it could be applied, who would buy it, et cetera? And how did you balance spending time with potential customers and potential markets versus making your stuff work in the earliest days? Customers are everything. It's a weird thing for scientists like me and Sean to be so customer focused to the point where we would formulate products for them, like just to figure out what would work. We would do the, all the heavy lifting on the end product to understand in their system what would be the best product and the best chemicals for that. And so that for us, that was like before even like building and trying to scale, we were doggedly focused on the customer to the point where Sean was delivering product in his Subaru. We wouldn't ship it, right? We didn't trust FedEx to get the product to the customer on time. So at the time we would just said, hey, let's just throw it in the back of your Subaru and let's go give it to the customer. Sean, I'm sure you remember that. Yeah, I think in the early days, the customer focus is actually the most important because you know it requires a lot of uh, time and capital to essentially enter the chemicals industry. And so you need customers to help you get there. And I think one of the things that's really important to highlight is the element of luck. I mean, we did our 100K, MIT 100K entrepreneurship competition pitch, and we were just really lucky that someone who owned a float spa, Gorb and I had never even heard of a float spa, saw our video, shared it on this forum with 400 other float spa owners. And all of a sudden we were like, oh, wow, we have all this inbound. And I'm like, okay, well, we've got $10,000. I can build this. If we can do this selling price, it's like, oh, wow, we could actually make money here. And it was kind of like, it's a really niche market, but finding that niche and clinging onto it and using that to kind of start spinning that snowball effect, that flywheel, I think is really important in the early days. And when you went through Y Combinator, how much SynBio had gone through there? And with the benefit of hindsight, how is it different getting a SynBio company off the ground versus say a consumer company or a SaaS company? <laughs> I don't think many Symbio companies had gone through YC in the winter 2017 batch. Sean, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but 
I'm just thinking of a handful. I think Ginkgo went through, Ligos, iMicrobes, only a handful. So it was still like, I think, fairly new to Y Combinator on how to give advice and how to advise business strategy for companies like that. And for us, what we latched onto was less about let's peg ourselves as a Syn bio company and let's just immerse ourselves in the world of YC, right? It's all about customers at that point, customer discovery, customer traction, understanding customer pain points and delivering products and applications for that. That fundamentally, I think, was what allowed us to succeed in the early years was we got lucky because we were so customer focused. We knew what the customer wanted before we spent all this money trying to build something that no one really cared about. So I think fundamentally that framework at YC, it didn't matter if we were a Syn bio company or a software company, that framework was very true to us. And we, we were pretty scrappy in those early days just to try to get revenue going for the business. And as you have gotten further along and started to scale up your production capabilities and you're selling more as well and into various markets, I mean, is the pitch the same from market to market or does it really depend on the industry that you're targeting? And, and what is the value prop that really makes people's eyes light up and gets them to, to lean in? Yeah, so the details on the, imagine like the customer has a problem and we're there to solve that problem. We're delivering a solution, not just a molecule. So there it does change by industry, but I think the commonality across all of them is we do not lead into any customer engagement with some sort of green premium. That was one of the big learnings that we got from the Cleantech 1.0 companies. And that's also like the really critical thing to highlight about the BioForge is this is about delivering carbon negative chemistry at a really good value in terms of price and performance. So like when we go directly to a customer, we go straight to the field, we go straight to the end user and we deliver on price and performance. And what environmentally and like sustainability governance, like what ESG means at the operator level is actually safety. They care a lot that we're delivering a safer molecule. We don't have to ship hazmat. They don't have to wear as much really crazy PPE when they're using our chemistry. And what we found, which is really exciting is once we get that first sale and we do that first field trial with the customer, we can then show the PL improvement for that customer. And what's really exciting, you know, especially in the era that we're in and this is even different now than it was two years ago, is the number of corporate sustainability groups. Many of our customers have come out and said, hey, we've got this carbon reduction target by 2030 or by 2040. And so what we do is after we do that first case study, is we go to that corporate sustainability group and we say, hey, look what we did, look at this value we delivered. Come join our life cycle analysis stakeholders group and like we'll quantitate for you. Like if you were to roll out Solugen's products company-wide, what would be that impact to your environmental footprint? And so I get that you don't want to lead with a green premium. I think that makes a lot of sense. What objections did you get early on and how have you navigated to get around those over time or work through them? Yeah, I think the objection was actually less about the product as more of, it actually ended up being more of a supply chain distribution and QAQC question. So the boring stuff, right, Jason? Like this was fundamentally like what customers care about. Am I going to get my product on time? Is the product going to be on spec? Is it going to do what you say it's going to do? And are you going to be able to consistently deliver this product in the future? And for us, what we did was we very early on built out our supply chain ops team to kind of handle that because 
fundamentally, we're in the chemicals industry, and operational excellence is kind of table stakes. So we knew that for us to be taken seriously, that's where we had to be most proficient. It's just funny because it's like the technology matters. Don't get me wrong, but like if you're not delivering a product on time, no one cares. <laughs> no one's going to like take you seriously. So we ended up investing heavily into our supply chain operations team and infrastructure early in the company's history. Sean, I don't know if you have anything to add to that one. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think people get excited about the technology, but then you end up in the same category as you know everyone else where it's like we're in conservative industries and their assets are critically enabled by these types of chemistries. So you have to demonstrate that you can supply, that you can be there on time with the right product every single time. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget when they're building you know, a technology platform is that. It's something that sounds so basic, but it's really, really important. So, I mean, when you go in and you bring on a new customer, typically, if there is a typical, who are you displacing and what are you displacing? We're taking market share away from largely it's distributor companies. So a lot of the companies, customers that we work with, they're not buying directly from the manufacturer, right? They're buying from a middleman who's buying from a middleman who's buying from, like there's a a whole chain of custody that ends up, we're not really competing at the manufacturer level, we're competing at the distributor level. So fundamentally what we're replacing is a distributor business who may or may not have the ability to have pricing power that we do. And so that's like the beauty of vertical integration to some degree, right? And you saw it with Tesla. There was no middlemen involved in the way they sell their products. And we kind of took the same approach. So I'd say that's that distributor philosophy and mentality are kind of what we were competing against. That said, I still think there's a lot of opportunities to work with those distributors as well to provide them our products to make their operations more efficient. So I'd say, yes, it's competition, but at some point we want everyone to be partners for our business because we think we can provide positive externalities that'll be better for for their operations. And how hard would it be for the incumbents for these traditional two ways that you described to to move into the territory of combining them in the way that you have? It'd be very, very difficult. So imagine combining a front-end enzymatic process with a downstream metal catalyzed process is non-trivial. Took us many years and you know we're now supported by over 60 patents. But even though there's over 60 patents, there's a significant amount of know-how in terms of how do you integrate these two things that normally don't talk to each other? How do you build teams with very diverse skill sets that can even do that? Those teams do not exist at any of these incumbents, whether you're on the fermentation side or the petrochemical side. And then the know-how to actually go from a 400 microliter well plate to a 40,000 liter pressurized bubble column, which if you do the math, that's a 100 million X factor of scale up. So it's very much non-trivial, but then I think what's really exciting is that, okay, it's non-trivial on the tech side, but then what Gore was talking about for us in the marketplace is we're going directly to the end customer. So like the actual incumbents from the molecule side, if you look at who we're displacing in the industry, these are manufacturers predominantly located in China. They're using carbon monoxide as a feedstock. They're using nitric acid as a feedstock. They're using methane as a feedstock. They're using phosphate or rock as a feedstock very toxic, very nasty feedstocks, they make their molecules. And then those molecules change hands on average five times before it reaches one of our end use customers. And there's a margin bump along the way. For us, we're using water, air, and corn syrup 
it's made in America and we ship it directly to the end use customer. So like, not only do we have this like really exciting technology moat, we also have a really exciting commercial moat in terms of how we go to market. And I'd argue that's like a knock-on effect of the technology. And when you're asking, well, can someone easily replicate this? On a technical level, no. But on top of that, there's that commercial level as well, that it's really, really hard to do what we've done and create the network of customers and distribution that we have. And can you talk a bit about what markets you're in today and also what penetration looks like to date? And I guess that's really a question that's both a a Solugen-specific question, but also just to kind of get a sense of where the chemicals industry is in transitioning overall. Yeah, I can take this one. So for this one, we sell into a multitude of markets today. We sell into water treatment. We sell into agriculture. We sell into concrete. So like infrastructure and manufacturing, we sell into energy. And so for us, we don't see, what we do is we understand a market as deeply as possible. So we don't see ourselves as just an ingredient supplier. Like I said about the vertical integration, we really understand the customer in a market because even though it's the same product, Jason, it could be a very different way of thinking about how it's used. Even the terminology is different. I'll give you an example, and this is kind of technical, but in water treatment, our product is called a chelate. But in agriculture, it's called a complex. Chelate means something totally different in agriculture. It's almost like there's a history history with each of these markets and, and these products. And like we have to understand them very, very deeply. And so that's one, I think, an interesting way that we've approached it as a company is we go super deep into a vertical, which is not really seen with a lot of the manufacturers because, again, they're trying to play a volume game, right? They just want to sell as much of the product as possible but for us, we believe that because we could be profitable at smaller scales, we can have a more intimate relationship with the market and end customers. And when you look back to the earliest days, how have you gone about capitalizing the company to date? And specifically, it'd be interesting to understand the mix of equity capital versus any non-dilutive capital, if there was any, versus things like project finance, just to kind of understand one how does this kind of business scale? Two, what choices have you made? And then three, how has the landscape changed or how do you hope it changes so that more solugens can emerge? Yeah, so we focus predominantly, you know, equity financing, right, in terms of, you know, the Series A and the Series B and now the Series C. But each time we do that, I mean, we are a fairly capital intensive business. But I think what's exciting is that in terms of like, capex per like tons per year that we can produce we're about 5x cheaper to build a plant than a traditional chemical plant and so we've actually been able to leverage things like equipment loans as a way to help finance our plants we've also we have raised debt as well to help project finance this and then the other one is actually reverse financing after the plant is built so there's a whole bunch of really interesting finance structures out there there's also a really interesting one called the new market tax credit the NMTC. So there's a bunch of government programs as well. And you see more and more of those things popping up where, you know, the U.S. government wants to find green manufacturing technologies and bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Yeah, I think that's a huge tailwind for us is that with the infrastructure bill, with a lot of the supply chain disruptions we've seen, what I'm hoping is future solutions can kind of leverage some of the capital that's being created in this space to not just have to dilute themselves with equity dollars in the future. 
It's a weird analogy, but you know that we have this little climate tech fund and we use the AngelList rolling fund structure. And you can talk about the structure and the pros and cons versus a traditional fund in a vacuum. But then when we go and talk to a lawyer, for example, that works with a lot of traditional funds, they're like, what the heck is this? When we talk to an accountant that's used to doing accounting and tax planning for traditional funds, they're like, what the heck is this? So things like that, right, or institutional LPs that are used to looking at performance in a certain way, they're like, what the heck is this, right? And it's not necessarily that rolling funds are bad. It's just that there's a learning curve because it's a different kind of structure than has existed before. I'm curious, since this is bringing that back around, since this is a different kind of structure than has existed before, is that kind of stuff rearing its head or has it along the way? And if so, where? Yeah, I think a lot of the, again, you have to come back to our industry, right? Our industry is very much a project financeable type industry and venture in the chemical space is few and far between. Obviously there was some of the stuff happening in clean tech 1.0, but I think where we're trying to be innovative is not just on the technology or the distribution side. It's how we think about capital, like rolling funds. And, and like, these are all amazing opportunities that chemical companies cannot take advantage of because they're already so big and have so much red tape associated with them. Us, on the other hand, we don't have that kind of red tape, right? So we can take advantage of things like AngelList. We can take advantage of a lot of the democratized fundraising platforms out there that allow us to be able to get capital for not just Solution, but projects that we're working on as well. So I think for us, we would recommend a lot of these new companies look into funds that are doing what, Jason, you're talking about on the rolling fund side, because that opens up a much bigger opportunity for continual fundraise for us, not just you as a fund manager. What I've heard from some other non-Synbio startups, since I haven't talked to too many, to be honest, this is a new area for us and it's a super important one. And I feel like I'm starting the Black Diamond bringing you guys on, honestly. But what I've heard is that sometimes they'll need to manufacture at a certain scale from a plant standpoint, but because it's a first of a kind, there's more risk. And so traditional project finance it's too risky. And then there can sometimes be a capital gap, right? Where it's too expensive or maybe not the best use of equity capital, but it's too risky for project finance. Did you guys find any of those kind of chasms along the way or has it been a non-issue? Yes. So there, I think there's some perverse incentives in terms of traditional project financing. And what I mean by that is if you look at like project financing in the energy sector, like the oil and gas sector, there it's set up and they expect you to have a 10-year offtake contract with your counterparty. And that's not really customer service. A 10-year offtake contract that's take or pay is not customer service. And what you're doing is you're incentivizing the construction of mega plants where your customer is somewhat the enemy. It's like, hey, I'm building a million tons per year. You better take 500 million tons per year. They're only going to agree to do that if you give them this incredible price point. So now your margin has shrunk. So there is this type of legacy project financing that's not well suited for innovative technologies. And that's also, I guess, not well suited for first of a kind process technologies. The real benefit about Solugen and kind of how we get around this is that we don't have to build mega plants in order to build a profitable plant. We can actually build these smaller facilities. And that's actually been game changing in terms of enabling us to scale and scale quickly. So if you look ahead at say over the next 12 months, 24 months, what's 12 times five, six, uh, 60 months. What are the key priorities for the company? Keep building plants. It's really funny because like everyone's like, oh, like what do you tell to employees? What do you tell to investors? What do you tell the press? And we're like, guys, it's the same thing, right? Like, like the easiest thing that you could do as a founder or CEO or whatever is to be like, 
have one true north and communicate that to every stakeholder. For us, that true north is let's build more plants. If we're building more plants, necessarily we're having a significant environmental impact. We're reducing carbon, right? Each of these plants is a carbon negative sink. So for us, by doing that, not only are we hitting our bottom line goals, we know each of these plants is hyper profitable, but we're also hitting our social mission. So for us, whatever allows us to build more plants is the thing that allows us to effectively create value. So there's no question on, well, what should we be focusing on now? Yeah, it's more bioforges, launch more molecules on bioforges, sequester more carbon. That's the game plan. And you talked about the importance of of no green premium. Where are you on cost relative to competition today? And where do you hope to be looking forwards or aim to be? Yeah, so today we compete in the specialty chemical sector. And the specialty chemical sector, what that's defined as, you know, average selling price of $1,000 to $5,000 per ton. And we compete at or below standard incumbent pricing for, you know, these vast majority of molecules that are made foreignly and then imported. And that's I think what's so exciting about the technology is that we compete on price. It's price and performance first and foremost. So if you look at the chemicals industry overall, where are we in terms of adoption of these cleaner chemicals? And what are some of the barriers that are holding back everybody else? Yeah, we're at like the day one, essentially, in the chemicals industry. I mean, the chemicals industry... It's going to be interesting because they have trillions of dollars of installed capital, and that installed capital is really good at converting petroleum into a whole bunch of nasty things. But I think the reckoning for the chemicals industry as you progress forward is their customers have made all of these carbon neutrality statements. And then the reality in the chemicals industry is that, and I think people overlook this, but I think it's so important, is how dangerous chemical plants are. You know, 30% of Solugen employees have actually been affected by a chemical plant explosion. They actually happen very frequently in Houston. Gorb and I have had black smoke over our house from the ITC fire. And when you look at that from a profitability perspective, a chemical plant today is three times more expensive to build than it was in the 1970s, even adjusting for inflation. And that's because as a society, we demand safer chemical plants. So there's this reckoning coming where Customers are demanding net carbon neutral, net carbon negative molecules, and people also don't want chemical plants to explode, which makes them more expensive to build. Even in countries like China and Russia, you're seeing safety standards improve. So like the development of these types of technologies that Solugen has developed and the scaling up of them is like really critical. And we're, I think we're in a great location to have a major impact. And also it's probably like there's a philosophy aspect of it too, where it's like, if it's working, you know, why would you fix it, right? If it's not broke, well, why would you fix it? Where it's like, these assets are going to not be so profitable for these individuals soon. But I think that philosophy, people don't want to accept that because that means that their whole CapEx structure and strategy was, was flawed. And so if you look at the things that are outside of the scope of your control, what are the big levers that, if moved, could have the biggest impact on accelerating this transition? And what would you do to those levers to to most impactfully bring about change? Like, where are the blockers? Yeah, I think the blockers are just, it goes back to, this is a slow industry, Jason, like, to qualify a new product, to qualify a new material or plastic it's a lot of work. And I think understanding what those pinch points are and how we can 
hack our way around them or make them happen faster, that's where we're going to find success. I hate to say it because it's like people often think that it's just a better mousetrap. It's not the case. It's proving that it's a better mousetrap. So it's a lot more communication, trust building, really, I mean, anything that's true for any fundamental old industry, you have to be able to understand where things are and then simultaneously use that as a judo move to start moving it forward. But it takes time. It's not going to happen in a couple of years. It's going to take a couple decades, to be frank. And an example there, Jason, is like we service power plants, right? And like a power plant should be conservative. They should be slow to adopt. I think it's really important, right? But when I think about external factors that could enable companies like Solugen to grow faster, I do think sort of a rework to how the Department of Agriculture and Department of Energy do their project financing loans, you know, more innovative structures, the ability to do it for first-of-kind plants, I think would be super helpful. And then, of course, for companies like ours, a carbon tax obviously would have an impact. I mean, people move when they see compelling value. And so the more compelling value that we can deliver to a customer, the faster that customer is incentivized to move and to adopt our technology. Given the role that potential future policy could play in accelerating the efforts of Solugen and others like you, is that an area that you've been building out muscles and investing in? Do you plan to in the future? We are. Think about and and we're, we're quite open about this. And you know, obviously, it's public. But we, we do do some work on the Hill. We have lobby groups that we work with to, to get the dialogue going, right? There's no specific like, hey, we want to sell this product. It's more about how can we talk more about some of the stuff that we're doing in this industry that no one really, politicians don't talk about, right? And that's not the fault to politicians. It's just people that aren't aware of it. And so for us, it's more of a, an awareness play at the, at the congressional level where we can start saying, look, there's all these really amazing infrastructure deals, you know, climate change things that, that are being discussed. But what we need to put into those discussions is that this industry that we're working on, the materials and chemicals industry, is a significant contributor to a lot of the things that these policies are trying to fight. And so for us, it's we want to understand what are the alternatives. And it may not be Solugen. We may not be the only alternative. There might be other companies, but that needs to be at least a talking point at the table with these politicians. And that, that is where we put significant resources behind. So if I went to a wedding this weekend and happened to be at the table next to the CEO of one of these big incumbents, and I said, hey, what do you think about Solugen? What would they say? One, it'd be a compliment if they knew who we were. So I think there's a there's a humbleness to it, right? Where we're talking, you know, hundred billion, two hundred billion dollar companies. We're no, small. Though, this latest financing, you're not exactly, you know, young Y Combinator kids anymore. That's fair. That's fair. So you know, maybe maybe that first hurdle will be gone. But I think the second one is just like we're not like looking at this competitively, right? We're looking at this as how do we partner with the incumbents in this industry. They're the incumbents for a reason. They did something right. So clearly there's a lot for us to learn from that. And what I would try to like get the dialogue going is, hey, how can you guys work with a company like Solution for the betterment of the industry and for society versus having a zero-sum mentality? I think that the pie is massive. This industry is $6 trillion. So there can't just be one winner. We have to be thinking about how do we work together to capture that $6 trillion in a sustainable way. So I, I would say, what are the partnership ways? How, how do you guys think about working with a company like Solution to make your business better? And does the lobbying and the entrenched interest in the chemicals industry work similar to how it does in fossil fuels? I don't think it's as politicized, to be frank with you, because it's not as obvious that the carbon emissions are what they are. I'll put it that way. 
That said, I think once these conversations come to light, it could become a contentious point. So for anyone listening that's inspired by what you're up to, where do you need help? Who do you want to hear from? So for us, right, we're going to be launching a new product later this year to essentially help make concrete more sustainable. We can reduce the amount of cement required by over 10%. We're really, really excited about all the infrastructure happening in the U.S. And we think it's a huge time to have a massive impact on infrastructure. Even building materials like this will sound really boring, Jason, wood glue. It's got a lot of formaldehyde in it. And we have formaldehyde-free wood glues, right? We've got a whole suite of, of products coming out. The other one is on the hiring front. We're looking for the world's best enzymologists and strain engineers to come and join Solugen. And then lastly, on the government side, I'll do another plug on the EPA for Tosca. I think it comes from a good place to you know, regulate new molecules, but I think there's some unintended consequences where a lot of these new molecules are bio-based and they're low carbon and they're, they're being regulated in ways that these more toxic molecules have been grandfathered into that never were subject to this regulation. It's unfair. It's unfair. Yeah, it's so very unfair. We're working with Solugen and companies like Solugen to, you know, do better regulation of how do new, you know, low carbon or carbon negative manufacturing assets get permitted. I think would be helpful. Guys, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? We're always here to, to chat and figure out with listeners if anyone is interested in an entrepreneurial journey in the climate space how we could support from not just from a Solution perspective, but from a personal perspective. You know, I think a lot of people forget you need a lot of compassion, a lot of compassion, not just for the environment, but for yourself while you're going through this journey, particularly the climate journey, because there's going to be points where you're just like, what am I doing? Like, am I really making a difference on a personal level? And I think having some compassion for yourself and being able to talk openly about some of the challenges that go into a climate journey like this, you know, we're always here to chat about that because we've, we're going through it right now. Well, definitely rooting for you guys. And thanks so much for making the time to come on and educate me and listeners on Solugen, but also on, on the chemicals industry and on scaling a SynBio startup. So I learned a bunch on, a, on several different dimensions and wishing you guys every success. I really appreciate it, Jason. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.